Today's episode was recorded in December of last year, as we here at the Canadian Psychological Association prepared for Psychology Month. So some of what you'll hear might sound a little dated, like references to COVID waves, and uh, if you pick up on that, that's why. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is the final episode of Season 5 of Mindful. You're going to hear the term SOGI a lot in this episode, and I'm not sure we ever fully defined it, so I'm going to do that here. Uh, It's an acronym. (laughs) Boy, psychology loves their acronyms. S-O-G-I, which stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. My guests today are from the CPA's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity section, and it's their work over the past couple of years we'll be discussing. A little history on the fight for marriage equality, a little more recent history on the efforts to ban conversion therapy, and the introduction of a term that I had not previously heard, femphobia. Let's meet today's guests. I'm Dr. Karen Blair. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Trent University in Ontario, and for the last losing count of years here, but 14 or, I don't know, <laughs> too many years, not 14 years. This is going in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely going in the podcast. 20, maybe since 2014. There we go. I knew 14 fit in there somewhere. Since 2014, I've been the chair of the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity section uh, of the Canadian Psychological Association. One of the things that our section gets called upon to do a lot is, is, you know, talk to the media or talk to policy developers in government and things like that uh, on topics related to LGBTQ lives in Canada. So we've been quite active on things like being asked to consult on the new legislation about uh, banning conversion therapy and things like that. That's terrific. Actually, I do want to talk about that new legislation uh, a little Mm -hmm. bit later. Dr. O'Handley, can we talk, uh, (laughs) can we have you introduce yourself? Well, I'm not a doctor, but I'm very (laughs) flattered that you've been calling me a doctor. I'm like, wow, getting a doctor is so easy. Um, What are people (laughs) complaining about? No, so not a doctor, but my name is Bree. I'm an MSc psychology student right now at Trent uh, University. So Dr. Blair is my supervisor. My thesis is specifically kind of looking at LGBTQ people's uh, mental well-being during the pandemic and how uh, LGBTQ community connectedness and social support might play a role in that, in resilience, kind of building resilience and, and helping people kind of overcome some of the difficulties they're having during the pandemic. But I also did my undergrad thesis with Dr. Blair, so I've been when was that? That was like 2017. <laughs> so since 2017, I've been doing like some sort of LGBTQ psychology research. And that's kind of my involvement in, in this field. All right. I, I do tend to just say doctor as a defect because that's what everybody is. And uh, Dr. Hoskett, I see that you have doctor on your name on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed <Okay>. doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep pretending, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm also not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I'm Dr. Rhea Ashley Hoskin. I go by Ashley or Rhea Ashley. Um, I am an AMTD Global Talent Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Waterloo in St. Jerome's, where I'm cross-appointed to the Departments of Sociology and Legal Studies and Sexuality, Marriage, and Family Studies. I am the Secretary and Treasurer of CPA's SOGI section uh, since... 2014, I think as well, (laughs) maybe 20, I don't know. I think 2016, maybe. 2016, okay. So for a while as a treasurer, 
Um, my work broadly looks at sexual and gender diversity, but more specifically, it looks at the societal treatment of femininity and femphobia. So how we as a society devalue and regulate femininity and how the treatment of femininity kind of cuts across different forms of gender and sexual uh, based oppression and discrimination. Are there such things, and would you guys consider yourself, is there such thing as a gender identity psychologist or a sexual orientation psychologist? Or are you a psychologist who specializes in sexual orientation, gender identity? And I assume that those two things are generally separate, but have been lumped together for the purpose of the section. I think it's a really interesting question because I think almost everyone in the section would answer it differently. And one of the things that's kind of neat, like one of the reasons I picked Bree and, and Ashley to come on this is because it kind of exemplifies something I think is a bit more unique to SOGI at CPA than some of the other sections in that one, it's a very student focused and driven section. So our student members are very active in, in, in the section. And then two, it's also interdisciplinary. And so not all of our members are firmly rooted in psychology and that like actually comes from gender studies and sociology, but has learned more about psychology and now kind of bridges the two. And so even just thinking of who's in the section, we have researchers and we have clinicians and even among the clinicians, I don't think there would be very many that would describe themselves as like a sexual orientation and gender identity psychologist. Among the clinicians, I think what you would see is kind of your more standard categories like an adolescent uh, clinician, a child development clinician, an adult, a couples therapy, all of these different types of clinical practice. And then what they would have is the additional specialization in being comfortable and knowledgeable in working with either sexual minorities and or gender minorities. And you're right that those two don't, you can know a lot about sexual orientation and sexual minorities and still manage to know nothing uh, about gender identity or gender minorities and vice versa. So I think, yeah, the two are, the two came together in a section quite a long time ago. It was Todd and Melanie Morrison that kind of founded the section. And the two came together at a time when I think the topics of kind of gender identity were less prevalent. And so the focus was really probably more on sexual orientation, but over time, gender has become a more important topic as well. There's been discussion at times of whether the section should even be potentially two sections, if there should be a sexual orientation section and a gender identity section. And then others have suggested, should there be a sexuality section that's more like human sexuality, where maybe sex therapists would kind of congregate. But I think because we're such a small section, we've remained a single section. But yeah, I think most people would say that they just bring that additional expertise to whatever else they do in psychology versus being firmly rooted in this as their brand of psychology. I don't want to start, you know, a civil war within the yeah. section here, and, <laughs> you know, mostly because if you guys split, then I have to do another one for another section. And there's a lot of work involved here, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering, I mean, you, you mentioned that, right, gender identity has become a lot more prevalent uh, in recent years. We're a lot more aware of it. We know more. Uh, and I'm wondering just in general, in this type of work, what have been some of the major changes in the last 10, 20 years over the last little while? What are you guys doing today that you wouldn't have been doing in, say, you know, 2005? Well, Bree and I were joking about that just before we came on here because she was like, well, I'm, I'm so new. How do I describe the past 10 years? And I was like, well, you weren't doing COVID at the beginning. 
That's changed. So yeah, COVID for the last two years has taken over everything, including within psychology, but more broadly for, I think, SOGI, well, kind of just that, that focus where we started off, you know, this section started, I think 2002. So one of the big issues that was really pressing for SOGI at the time was things like same-sex marriage and seeing the extension of civil rights in Canada to LGBTQ couples and mostly in that case, same-sex couples. And so like, if you go back and you go through the policy statements, there's a policy statement from way back in the day from CPA saying that we generally support this idea of same-sex marriage, right? And at the time that was novel and exciting. And now it's like, duh, right? right? And so I think that, you know, that was kind of one of those key focuses and a lot of research in the area kind of early 2000s was really looking at that idea of saying, look, same-sex relationships are the same as mixed-sex relationships in terms of the fact that they're good for people, they are healthy, that, you know, love is love. Like these were the types of things that researchers and clinicians were kind of focused on and trying to support policymakers in understanding that when people are cut out of an institution like marriage, not saying that everyone has to get married, but that they don't even have that option, that it does things like change the relationships that they have with the rest of their family or with their friends or their coworkers. So for instance, something so silly as holiday parties at a company where they're extended to include spouses, right? But if you were a same-sex couple in late 1990s or early 2000s, it would be really unclear whether or not your partner was included. And in some cases, it'd be quite explicit that they were not included. And some people, you know, at the time even felt that, you know, they couldn't even talk about their partners at work. They couldn't have a photo of them on their desk, things like that. And so I think from psychology's point of view, we were able to kind of point out how those things take a toll on people's mental health and their well-being over time and how marriage might have seemed like a very political thing to some people. But in at the end of the day, it really was something that garnered a new level of social support from people's families and friends. A lot of there's a lot of research showing that, you know, families of gay and lesbian individuals just kind of didn't get it until the moment they were at the wedding. And when they were sitting there at the wedding and there's this social script that tells them what to do and when to stand and when to sit and when to applause and when to clink their glasses, that was when it finally clicked for them. They're like, oh, hey, this is the same. This is a serious commitment. This is people that want to spend their lives together and being able to put it into that social ritual that people understand was able to make it make sense for people. And I think that then comes with it, the additional support for for individuals and that changes their mental well-being. So I would say that was kind of a huge focus 10, 20 years ago now. Um, That's disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) And that that was not an immediate, it was a process in Canada. It started in kind of 1998 when the Supreme Court said that the definition of spouse had to include same-sex partners. And then you started to see the provinces kind of almost like dominoes, they would legalize something and then the next one would. And then again, the Supreme Court said in 2003 that that has to be federal. And then we had a government shift. And so it wasn't until 2005 that it actually became a a federal across the country legislation. And so I think because of that kind of incremental process, psychologists and SOGI were really involved in that process over the time. We would have been, you know, every time there was an article, somebody would have been interviewed and things like that. And then even following from 2005, I think a lot of these things that we see, you know, you can question whether or not these types of policy and legislation changes happen from the top down or the bottom up. 
And I think it's a little bit of both. And so you need enough of the grassroots movement to get the attention of the legislature to say, this is something that needs to change. So we need same-sex marriage. But then I think you see a lot of the broader societal attitude changes, they've come afterwards, right? Even from those little, in, those little personal experiences of being invited to a same-sex wedding might change somebody's uh, perspective down the road. So from 2005, maybe probably up until 2016, 2017, I think that's that kind of idea of the legitimizing of relationships and parenting and building LGBTQ families remained kind of a really big focus and also simply because the U.S., you know, that that debate in the U.S. extended much longer, right, up until 2015. And so because they shadow over us, um, I think that remained it. But I would say that starting around 2010, we really started to see the topic of gender identity come up more as being a more uh, pressing need for us to look into and to talk about. And we started, you know, writing policy statements in the section to kind of talk about things like pronouns and and uh, respecting people's chosen names and the fact that people are able to identify their gender identities and, and things like that, uh, following all the way through to this past few. I mean, it feels like it's been a number of years now where we've been talking about conversion therapy, but conversion therapy, both with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity. And so I think this last maybe five years has really been focused on both of those topics to a much broader extent. So I would say kind of to encapsulate 20 years, it's kind of going from establishing that same-sex relationships are okay and valid and need support and that there are positive things that come from that. Once people are in those relationships, then you have questions of parenting and adoption and things like, you know, that Ontario, you can now put more parents on a birth certificate and that a same-sex parent doesn't have to adopt their child, but in some parts of the country, they still do. And then flowing into the topic of, of gender identity and gender diversity more broadly and, and how we can tackle those types of issues as well. I, I, that, that would be kind of the arc that I've seen for 20 years. That's a long uh, arc and that's good. That's, <laughs> that's a lot to work with. No, that's great. And uh, just to put a cap on that, right? Now we're talking about this conversion therapy ban that's gone through the Senate, fast-tracked and, uh, you know, will become law very, very soon once it gets the rubber, rubber stamp of royal assent, I'm sure. Is that a victory as it's written right now? Is this exactly how you guys would have written this uh, legislation? Or, uh, you know, is there still work to be done to make sure that there are more protections out there? As the chair of the section, I have to think about the, the wide variety of views that would be represented within our section. And again, I guess what I think would be interesting here is that you would have the full spectrum of perspectives within our section from people saying that the legislation goes not far enough to people saying it goes too far, even within our section. And that just kind of points to what a tricky area it is and how challenging it is to, to tackle these types of things through the process of legislation, not least of which being the, the challenge of pitting things like religious freedom against individual freedoms, which is, it's always going to be challenging. So I think with the conversion therapy, I think, I mean, it's, it's one of the most comprehensive and far sweeping pieces of legislation in the world with respect to conversion therapy. I think they have done a really good job of thinking of where conversion therapy is happening today. It's not half psychologists by and far are not practicing this, right? We've not been doing that for a long time and social workers and doctors, you know, there have been individual 
licensing agencies that have long come out and said that this is not something to be done, which leaves conversion therapy as it is now to be practiced by unlicensed people, often within religious contexts or with just kind of fly by night, uh, self-help type things that have no types of oversight. And that's the, that's the big gap that this legislation is trying to fill, is trying to say that even if you are not part of a licensing body that can tell you you'll lose your license for doing this, we still want to be able to say you can't do this, specifically with minors. Uh, but this more, the, the revised version went even further and went beyond minors. And so I think it's all great. And I think that as with any type of kind of contentious legislation like this, we're not really going to fully understand where it lands until it's challenged in the courts. So I think that we'll see a challenge from potentially some, you know, religious organizations or, or practitioners who feel that this does in some way conflict with their rights, or you might even see a challenge from a, a gay individual who doesn't want to be gay because, um, this is where I'm treading into hot water here, um, but uh, like, you know, somebody who might very well value their religious identity more than their gay identity, and who wants to seek help in potentially live, living a celibate life, let's say. I don't want to say that, you know, because it's pretty clear that there's no therapy that can change someone's sexual orientation. I think that's where you're going to find a gray area that might just get ironed out and clarified within the courts about where is the line? What can be, what can we talk about? What can't we talk about? Who can we help? Who can we not? To what end? To what goal? What can we promise? What types of informed consent do we need to provide? You know, I'd love to have all of these people just kind of saying upfront, there is no evidence that any form of therapy can change someone's sexual orientation. We need to know and understand that upfront Within that, what do you think may or may not be the best goal for any one individual uh, in that situation? I think Canada should be praised for the fact that this is really the most comprehensive and ambitious piece of legislation that the world has seen so far. But I think because of that, it's kind of just waiting to see, you know, what will the courts actually say? And that will be an interesting process to follow through. And, and Sogi and many of our members will be involved in that as well, I'm sure. So, all right, femphobia. It is a term I haven't heard before. I'm hoping, uh, I think, Ashley, this is your area of expertise. I'm hoping you can define this for me and tell me what your work in that space is, is all about. Femphobia is a term that comes from fem theory. I don't think we need to go into that. But um, in short, femphobia is about the way that society devalues and regulates femininity and how that devaluation and regulation of femininity can target anybody. So it can target a cisgender man who, um, as Karen always gives the example, orders a salad or is seen somehow as being feminine. Um, it's kind of a social demotion, right, to see a man as being feminine. But we can also see women in science who are too feminine, wear too much makeup and seen, being seen as incompetent or not looking like a scientist. So there's all of these different ways that society devalues femininity and our ability to see femphobia comes from um, the study of sexual and gender diversity. So our ability to kind of tease apart gender identity from sex assigned at birth and gender expression. So when we can see those things as different, we can see how gender expression comes into play and how it's regulated. Karen, do you wanna to talk too? One of the neat things about femphobia is that once it does click, 
you begin to kind of see it everywhere and all these different ways that we kind of devalue femininity. And it, it's, it's two things. It's, if you have feminine traits in any person, we regulate to what extent you can be feminine. So with a man, we give them a pretty narrow range of femininity. In most cases, we'd prefer they have none. And if they stray anywhere into that, we have names for them, right? Even just in the football locker room, if, if they want, if a coach wants to insult a team for not playing well, they'd say that they played like a bunch of ladies or a bunch of girls, right? And that really stings and they get the message that coach is not happy. If a man walks too femininely, talks too femininely, talks with his hands, all these sorts of things, we take him down a notch for it. And then we also use femininity at, in our society as a, almost like a weapon or an insult. So for instance, one of the things Ashley and I love to follow in the news is how femininity is used in politics. And so for example, when people want to attack Justin Trudeau, one, they call him Justin instead of Prime Minister Trudeau. They're much more likely to call him by his first name. Whereas when we're upset with Stephen Harper, we call him Harper no matter what. He was never, oh, Stephen. And we never called him Stevie, right? With Justin Trudeau, they'll even go and they'll say, oh, Justine. And they'll change his name and they make his hair and everything else. It's not just politicians like Trudeau will do this across the spectrum. So even with people like Putin and Trump, when people want to make fun of them, one of the common go-to memes on the internet is to add makeup to their faces and make them look like an overdone woman. And so even whether, no matter how you feel about Trudeau, Trump, or Putin, they're all taken down with this same attack of femininity. And it is used to kind of say that they are lesser than, that they are stupid, that they are silly, that they're frivolous, that they're uh, extreme. All of these different things can be conveyed just by making them feminine, which leaves you wondering, what does that mean? What are we saying about the people who actually are feminine? And that we can use this as this tool that essentially feminine, it's kind of like when we used to say, that's so gay. And what we meant was that's stupid or silly. Well, we're kind of saying, we're not saying it. We're not saying that's so feminine, but we are using femininity to send the same message to say that that's incompetent, that's silly, that's frivolous, it's useless, and that it's no good. And uh, it's just such an easy thing that we do so naturally that we don't really even notice it which is why once you do notice it, you start to see it almost everywhere. I'm certain I'm going to start seeing it almost everywhere. Yeah. Now I'm conscious <laughs> that I talk with my hands a lot. I was not, yeah. a, that was a feminine trait, but I, I do. And, well, we're not trying to not... get rid of it. <laughs> Just kind of jumping off a little bit on what Karen is saying about how it's so naturalized. I think that we often see it, see femphobia, but we'll chalk it up to, you know, that's homophobia. When we dress up Trudeau or Putin, that's homophobia or that sexism and misogyny or, you know, something else is transphobia, something else is about toxic masculinity and gender norms. But if we look at all of these examples and like the thread that's weaving them together, that's femphobia. So it, it gives us this unique perspective on, on a social prejudice that's kind of just undergirding all of these different types of oppression. It's reminding me of, there's a commercial that's on now and I can't remember what, I can't remember what the actual product is that they're advertising. So it's not good. <laughs> so obviously it's not a great commercial, but it, it, 
uh, is making me think of it. it, The commercial's basically about there's a bunch of guys and the one guy's like, I don't want to admit to my friends that I don't like beer. And then this, whatever the product is, is the alternative. I'm assuming it's a hard liquor of some kind that you can mix. Like a cooler. Or a cooler or something like that, right? You know, and that just the notion that, you know, because you're manly, you have to like beer and all this is sort of front and center in that particular commercial. And I don't know if you've seen it or if you know the one I'm talking about, but does it indicate that in some way we are making progress with this femphobia? And I have never heard the term until, you know, uh, Karen sent me an email about it. But now, yeah, obviously I'm going to be seeing it sort of everywhere, right? But yeah, we've been talking about toxic masculinity and about misogyny and about, you know, all these other things. You said that it's a thread that weaves through it, but I mean, all of those things are a part and parcel then of Femphobia, would femphobia be a more umbrella term? It's, I mean, it gets really tricky. Like sometimes, like even Ashley and I will debate, like something will happen and we'll be like, is that sexism or is that femphobia? Is that homophobia or is that femphobia? So for instance, like if a gay man comes out to his family and his family is, is kind of like, okay, but just don't be one of those swishy gays. That's femphobia, right? They're willing to make space for his for him being gay, but just don't go into being that girly kind of gay. And so, you know, each time, each example, you can kind of look at it and see what is the thing that they are actually critiquing. And so like the beer commercial is an excellent example of how you see this just everywhere. Right. And that like, if you're not, uh, you know, that light beer is seen as feminine and something to critique a person for when really maybe they're just making a wise choice, but like, it's, it's a health conscious choice. That's feminine. Caring about your health, caring about your appearance, all of these different things are, are you same with the example that we talked about with like the guy who wants to eat salad. It, they're not bad things, but they are the thing that kind of might hold men back from it is this association consciously or otherwise with femininity. And therefore you can see how femphobia has this ability to influence people's health, right? If you're going for the real man's beer, simply because that's the manly thing to do, then you're making a decision about what's going into your body in an effort to avoid being associated with femininity. And the lengths that we go to, to avoid associations with femininity are quite extreme. And they, they apply to men, they apply to women, they apply to even non-binary people. It's very interesting to see the patterns of pushing and pulling femininity away within how people define being non-binary. And we see it in gay people. We see it in straight people. It, it's, it, that's what's kind of what's so neat about it is that we can't really find someone who is not touched by it in some way, shape or form. Bree, I haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> and I want you to tell me, uh, I, I'd like, just like you to tell me about how your research has been affected by COVID. What are you doing now that you were <laughs> doing two years ago? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, pre-studying COVID. Yeah, exactly. Like Dr. Blair said, kind of coming into this master's, like this wasn't necessarily like the plan for what I would study. But given that COVID has dominated our lives for the last two years, I kind of had to switch the project up. I'm specifically looking at LGBTQ people's well-being during COVID. So kind of their trajectories of well-being um, to an extent, because we have, uh, we did, well, I think maybe you folks have already talked about this but we have like a diary study that was happening throughout COVID. So 28 yeah, days yeah. of diary data, um, looking at LGBTQ people's well-being, And like, it, it has kind of been dominating the field anyways. So there is quite a bit of research already, 
that has basically just found all over the world that LGBTQ people are faring worse during this pandemic and that their mental health has been impacted potentially more than non-LGBTQ people. They're definitely reporting higher levels of depression, anxiety, and stress. And various studies have kind of pointed to various things that might be impacting this. And so obviously, kind of everybody is just baseline experiencing COVID and, and like social isolation. But then on top of that, like LGBTQ people might be living in an unsupportive vir- environment, especially if they're younger. They're being separated from affirming community. So like friends uh, who really affirm their identity, maybe at school that they're not going to now, and they're unable to kind of access those resources. So LGBTQ resource centers, um, and again, like school resources, trans people can't access or couldn't at a time access hormone therapy and gender affirming surgeries. Those things were deemed non-essential at the beginning of the pandemic. So that was something that a lot of them maybe couldn't access if they hadn't already kind of started that process. And anybody who was planning on getting a surgery done, that was just kind of taken off the table for a while. And you also kind of had discriminatory discriminatory COVID restrictions in various countries. So like Peru, I think it was like you could only like only men could leave the house like on one day and only women could leave the house on the other day. So like where does that kind of put trans people or like people who are someplace in the middle? Like what does that do to them? nothing good. A lot of them experienced like a lot of harassment and like hate crimes as well, kind of during those times when they were out and about. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like this kind of tells us that these mental health disparities still exist between LGBTQ and non-LGBTQ people. Something that has been kind of interesting is when uh, like news uh, outlets have kind of written stories about this project, the comments are still kind of the general public being like, why do we care? Like we're all having a bad time. It's like LGBTQ people aren't special. And it's like, okay, but like, kind of clearly the research tells us that like that's not necessarily the case that LGBTQ people are having a harder time right now. Last year I spoke to Karen at this time uh, discussed you know how there were a lot of LGBTQ youth who were at home with an unsupportive family who didn't have access to those supports that's still uh, obviously a problem I guess right like it's a year later and we're having the same issue. Uh, I have a trans daughter here who wants to get HRT and all the rest of that now on a huge waiting list right I mean it's two years before she can see anybody really there were even supply chain like the supply chain thing that means you can't get a new iphone was also impacting things like the availability of hrt for for both trans men and women there was a time period for a few months in toronto where none of the trans men could get testosterone and so like all these different things like at different levels of the pandemic are kind of interesting in how they're making a change in people's lives Exactly. And so something that like, I guess I'm kind of more interested in on this is what does resilience look like during this time? Like, how do we kind of foster resilience in these circumstances? And, and how are LGBTQ people coping throughout this pandemic? And, and like you said, like, it's not totally over, right? Like, I think, um, I mean, not so much now, but I mean, like a month ago, I think people really felt like, oh, like, it's over, like, we're post pandemic. But it's clear now that that's not the case and and even then like it wasn't truly the case anyways but yeah like something that I'm really interested in is like what does that resilience look like in terms of the social environment um so research has kind of indicated that like community connectedness for LGBTQ people so if I feel connected to the LGBTQ community that should be beneficial to my mental health that should kind of like buffer some of these negative impacts but that's interesting because like how do we tease that apart from just general social support like is it just having social support from people who affirm your LGBTQ identity that's enough? Or is there something special about kind of feeling that connection to the community that makes a difference? And so that's obviously like an important thing to know and and would be good to know. And this kind of presents 
a perfect imperfect like opportunity to look at that <laughs> like obviously it's awful but it is kind of an opportunity to maybe try and tease that apart a little bit so you're saying that you don't know the answer to that yet but you are currently looking for that answer yeah that is that is kind of what my project is hoping to look at and yeah like i think that there have been people who've kind of tried to look at that in various ways but maybe not necessarily in like the exact way that that we want to look at it um so yeah like that's kind of the idea like how what is it that's kind of making the difference i think especially in this time era where like there's kind of this idea that i don't know that like it's cool to be gay now and like it's not that bad maybe we like don't need the community as much as we used to but i i'm interested to kind of see if if that's true or not Marie will complete that research and come up with an answer, I'm sure. And when she does, I'm hoping we can have her back on Mindful to talk about those findings and let us know just how much progress is indeed being made. I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Karen Blair, Dr. Rhea Ashley-Hoskin, and Brio Handley. This marks the end of the fifth season of Mindful. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed, downloaded, and listened to our episodes. I hope you've learned as much as I have. Mindful will be back in the fall when we may or may not be making a significant format change. Stay tuned. As always, Mindful is hosted, written, produced, edited, and published by me, Eric Bowman. And as always, our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. You know, I never really give anyone the chance to hear the whole music track. When I do this, it's always background music. I think this time I'm going to leave the whole track to play out for those who want to hear it. I'm going camping this weekend with David Taylor, the guy who wrote it. And I'm trying to convince him to come on the podcast himself because he's doing some really interesting things in Toronto. Maybe that's something to look forward to next season. See you then. Here's Avenues.